Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, God's Providence, with a message called, But Are We Truly Free? So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I have a memory from years ago. You know, because I was a pastor for many years, I've tried to be conscious about the kind of an example that I set. Well, of course, on moral issues, but also on some issues that are not moral. And here, let me bring up a personal and a bit of a painful issue. As many of you know, I ride a motorcycle, and over the years, I have been aware that I might be setting an example for some young 16-year-old who wants to get a sports bike, ride very fast, and kill himself. I don't want to inspire anyone to do that. I have on occasion heard of mostly young men who want to get a motorcycle and their parents say no, and the young man says, but, you know, Pastor John rides a motorcycle. I mean, that stuff, well, it really concerns me. I don't want to influence someone who, because of it, dies. And so, for my part, I've tried to provide a bit of wisdom about motorcycles. I've said that, really, a person ought to have some experience in a car before they attempt to ride a bike. They ought to have a number of years knowing what happens on the road and how traffic behaves. They ought to know how easily an accident happens. And then I also say that you must take a motorcycle training course at least two full weeks in length, learning about things like control and lane positioning and how to remain visible and where motorcyclists are most vulnerable and how always to look for a pathway of escape in a dangerous situation. I mean, all sorts of stuff like that. And the occasional upgrade in training is also invaluable. I've talked that way in the past, and and here's my memory. On one occasion, a 16-year-old said, "But, But Pastor John, you've said that God's always in control and that he controls the day of your birth and the day of your death. Well, if God has already determined the day of my death, I can't see why I should worry about getting a motorcycle and riding really fast. I mean, whether I ride fast or slow, my time of death is already determined, and Well, here's what I've said in response. I've said, yes, indeed. God does determine the lifespan of each human being. But have you noticed? He always ends the lives of the dumb guys first. So smarten up. (laughs) Well, you've noticed that in that conversation, there was an essential question that everyone asks about the providence of God. We've said that God not only is the creator of all things, but that he's the sustainer of all things. In him, says the book of Hebrews and the book of Colossians, in him all things hold together. Were it not that he actively willed everything that exists to exist, at each moment in time they would cease to exist. And that's to say the world is not functioning on its own. It functions at each moment because of the permission of he who made all things. And as we've attempted to work out the implications of that, we've seen that Scripture does take us to some amazing places. God controls the natural world, the placement of rivers and plains and and deserts and oceans. But God also controls all living things, and that includes when the mountain goats give birth and how each living thing behaves. It's he that determines the wisdom or folly of each living thing, and that means that he determined that the ostrich would have no part, in his words, of wisdom. Well, the Bible is even more explicit. God controls the birth of nations, the borders of nations, the system of government of each nation, the the people who rule each nation, the decisions they make. God also controls the footsteps of each person determining the course of their lives. 
But even though the amount of biblical evidence that says exactly that is impressive, still a great many of us are troubled. And so here, let me speak not to those who doubt the Scripture, but to those who believe the Scripture. Perhaps in this study, you've been exposed to Scripture you've, you've never taken notice of before, and perhaps that's changed your perspective. And suddenly you see that God is not only sovereign, he's meticulously sovereign, down to the smallest details. And if that's so, what about the reality of human actions and the choices we make for the good and for the bad? I mean, is every major choice I make merely an illusion? Now, to be sure, every Christian struggles with this. I mean, the moment we say that God knows all things, for example, and that his knowledge of all things includes a perfect knowledge of the future, well, we're immediately launched into a conundrum. If God knows each future event perfectly, we might also say, well, in that case, what I do in the future is already determined. I mean, how can my decisions be even remotely meaningful? I know a great many people who have tried to get around that. I mean, there are those called open theists who argue that God doesn't know the future at all. And so open theists will argue that God didn't know that Adam would sin. And he doesn't know if you will come to Christ or not. But say the open theist, God's pretty smart and he makes some very good and educated guesses. Well, the problem, of course, is that the Bible says exactly the opposite. In 1 Peter 1.20, Peter is speaking about the cross of Jesus precious blood of Christ, the one who has redeemed us from our sins. And then he says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Christ's work, says Peter, was already settled in the mind of God before anything was created. Well then, God knew and ordained that Adam would sin, Why else would he have created a world in which Christ, our Redeemer, would be foreordained? Or consider the words that come to us from Revelation 13, verse 8. Revelation 13 is the passage about the future coming of the Antichrist, wherein we already have a clear indication that God knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. But in verse 8, we're told, "...and all who dwell on earth will worship it." Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There again, we have not just God's perfect knowledge of the future, but God's ordination of the future. He has already written in his book the names of those who refuse to worship the beast long before that event takes place. Or we go to Isaiah 41, 22 to 23, which is a mockery of the idols. You know, the passage says, let them bring them, that is the idols, and let them tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. And that's the point of Isaiah. The idols are unable to do that, that is, tell the future. God does it with ease. Well, I could go on and on showing that, which is clearly the biblical perspective. God knows the future because God in his providence has already planned all things and is moment by moment sustaining all things. Ah, but this is where even Bible-believing Christians struggle. 
For if God knows and plans all things, then does it not seem that I have no free will at all? For isn't my free will my power to choose and determine my own path? And isn't that merely an illusion if God controls all things? And so today, let me make the case that human beings really do have free will and that the decisions we make really have real consequences. Because quite clearly, that's what the Bible teaches as well. But if the Bible teaches both human freedom and God's providence, how can those two things coexist? You know, in the time that I have left, I'm going to try to explain how this can be so. And here's a little warning. I'm going to use some philosophical concepts, so please, please bear with me. I think you may find it refreshing and even convicting. For God never calls us to simply say, well, whatever will be, will be. God calls upon every human being to choose, to decide, to make wise choices, to grasp the good, and to reject the evil. So where do we begin? I think we must begin by defining what it is that we actually mean when we use the phrase free choice. And at the outset, I've got to confess to you that, that years ago, I read an essay that was one of the most life-changing things that I've ever read. It was called The Freedom of the Will, and it was written by a man named Jonathan Edwards in the early 1700s. The late R.C. Sproul called this essay, in his words, the most important theological work ever produced in America. Now, that may be the case, but let me just say for me, once I understood what I was reading, it literally changed both my thinking, it also changed my praying, and the way in which I saw my relationship with God. Edwards began by saying that freedom or liberty is the power that anyone has to do as he or she pleases. And that, he says, is exactly what God has given every single human being. But from that, what at least seems like a very simple thing to say, comes a very complex series of thoughts. What causes any of us to be pleased with the things that please us? And is it really true that we only do the things that we please? So stay with me. What I'm about to say might just change how you think about God. You know, there's certain sensitive topics some of us tend to avoid discussing, even with our loved ones. Money is definitely one of those. But since the Bible certainly does not shy away from discussing the matter of money, then neither should we. That's why we're so excited to share with you our newest resource called 10 Questions About Money Matters. It's a short booklet based on Dr. John's audio series, God and Money and will help you address financial issues from a biblical perspective. We're confident this resource will provide financial guidance, helping us to become better stewards of the resources that God has graced us with. We're thrilled to offer you this booklet for free for the whole month of August. To request your copy or to offer a gift to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I want you to imagine a man who's a hopeless alcoholic. His enslavement to alcohol has robbed him of everything. He suffered a divorce because of it. His children want nothing to do with him. 
He's lost his job years ago and the bank has foreclosed on his mortgage. Finally, he's living on the streets. Now, I want you to imagine that this man, and we're gonna call him Frank, he's given a large 50 milliliter bottle of scotch. Not a good thing, but he settles into a secluded place. And here's my question. Is Frank free to drink that bottle, even as he is free to refuse to drink that bottle? Well, all of that depends on what we mean when we use the phrase or the word freedom. Certainly, Frank is physically free to refuse the drink. That is, Frank has the ability to order his arm not to pick up the bottle, not to open it, not to put it to his mouth, not even to open his mouth. He doesn't have to drink. His body is perfectly capable of performing the action of refusal. And so from a physical standpoint, Frank is absolutely free to do whatever he wants. But let's ask the question from a moral perspective. Frank may well find that he's morally unable to refuse. His will is held captive to his desires, or as Jonathan Edwards put it, to his affections. Frank finds that he must do that which his soul deeply loves. Yeah, yeah. He may love his kids. He may love his wife. He might dearly love to be gainfully employed and enjoy the things that others have, things that gladden their lives. But, but Frank also finds that he has another love, a love that supersedes all other loves in his life. His soul and his body deeply love the alcohol. And, and for the sake of the immediacy of his response to alcohol, he would gladly give up all of the joys. So is Frank a free moral agent? Well, it all depends on how you define freedom, doesn't it? And for Edwards, freedom consists in this. It is the power to do that which pleases you the most. Notice with you, Edwards is saying that everything we do is caused by something else. Edwards said that human beings as free and responsible moral agents always, without exception, choose to do what they most strongly are inclined to do. You know, in that sense, says Edwards, our volition, our will is determined. We are determined to do that which we are most inclined to do. We freely choose what we want the most. Now, I have to interject here and say that this, what has been called the compatibilist view of human freedom, that's to say human freedom is compatible with God's meticulous sovereignty of all things. I'm going to say more. But here's the issue. Whatever path we choose in life is not chosen from some morally neutral position. Look, we're not a blank slate that makes decisions without reasons for making them. No, our choice is determined. Yes, it's determined by the things that our hearts love the most. Whenever we choose a path or make a choice or choose one thing over against another, we do so for some reason. And the reason, says Edwards, rests entirely in what he calls your affections. You know, affections are different from simply passions. Our affections are the strong inclinations that lie in our souls. From our affections, we discover what we're inclined towards and what we stay away from. By the way, isn't that what we learn from the Scripture? I mean, listen to Romans 3, 10 to 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one? Yeah. No one seeks for God. All have rebelled against God. 
Yeah, but, but what about our free will? Well, we have freely chosen to rebel against God because our choice is determined. Well, it's determined by the things that we love the most. We love rebellion against God. We love making ourselves into a God rather than giving glory to God. Now, in truth, not all decisions we make are of the moral variety. I mean, assume for a moment you choose to take a more scenic route home today rather than the, the fast route home. Well, you've had a reason for that, and the reason had everything to do what you might have loved at that moment. But the point is that you make all decisions not from a neutral heart, but from a heart that loves some things and rejects other things. You see, I wonder, have you ever said, you know, I don't know what possessed me to do that. Well, the answer should now be clear. I did that because my heart loved it so, so that my affection for that thing overwhelmed my affections for the alternative. So let's talk about conversion. Watch the language of Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, watch this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God puts a new heart in us and causes us to walk in his statutes. Well, isn't that taking away our freedom? No, not if you understand that freedom consists entirely in this, to do what you want. And if God puts a new heart in us, we will his statutes. If we have an old stony heart, we will something else. Now, before I get back to the primary question, let me explain the battleground in every Christian. You know, in Romans 7, Paul describes that battle quite well. Romans 7.15 says, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, only a Christian, listen, only a Christian can say that. Look at verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, the members that Paul is speaking about well, they are his flesh. In all Christians, there's a battle between what the new heart wants and what the flesh wants. In the non-Christian, that battle is a very different one. See, in a non-Christian, neither the heart nor the flesh want God. But in the Christian, the flesh is that which remains until we receive our new bodies, but the heart is already made new. It is already of the world to come. And so we learn as a part of Christian discipleship to do what Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 tells us to do. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then later in verse 7, Colossians 3 tells us that while we were non-Christians, we walked in this kind of life with ease. But why did we walk in that life? Well, the answer is because both our heart and our flesh wanted this kind of life. We wanted it freely. Indeed, our heart was determined, or might I say predestined, to want that kind of life. So don't you see our freedom and God's settled predetermination are not at odds with each other at all. 
But once we're redeemed, our heart, now transformed through the new birth, wanted something we had never wanted before. And instantly, this new desire put us on a footing of warfare with the flesh. Well, there is so much more to say about the nature of the new birth and of the nature of Christian growth into holiness, but I've been making a point. It's not inconsistent with our faith to say that God providentially rules over all things and that human beings have a free moral choice, provided we define human freedom as the freedom to do that which our heart loves. So in that sense, God can harden, let's say, Pharaoh's heart, even while Pharaoh remains a free moral agent because he has done that which his heart has loved. And God, who controls all things, simply changed the external situation, and Pharaoh acted or reacted freely, doing that which he loved to do. But let's move from being theoretical to being practical. See, I love to pray about the health of my own heart. So I love to pray Psalm 51, verse 10. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. See, I love to pray, Lord, daily, renew my heart, change my heart so that I might love you more. And furthermore, I'm reminded that daily, I want to do what Romans 8 verse 13 tells me to do, that I might by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body. See, I know that genuine freedom is the freedom to move from being a slave of self to becoming a slave of Christ. For then my heart will love that which is loved by God. In short, we are truly free, but we need to pray, O Lord, change that which I love. John, one of the things I go away with is when you said we are bound to those things which we love the most. I think that really sort of summarizes our will, doesn't it? Yeah, and and Ben, I want to also add that, you know, normally I don't do a a program like this one, but I do it because so many people ask, if it's true that God is meticulously sovereign, which is clearly what the Bible says, and if it's also true that I have a free will, which is clearly also what the Bible says, so if we hold both of those things as true, then, then how can both be true? And so to say, to define human freedom as doing those things that we love the most and that we're bound in some way, we can't do the things that we don't love the most. So, you know, I I think when people say, I mean, why did I do that? And the answer has to be, I did it because my heart loved it so. And that's why we pray all the time, Lord, create in me a new heart. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us as we continue our series in God's providence tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Want to be kept up to date on all the developments and behind the scenes of Back to the Bible Canada? Then be sure to sign up for our ministry update email. These monthly emails provide insights into what's new and what's forthcoming here at Back to the Bible Canada. Updates about the ministry's international efforts, new opportunities to share the good news spread around the globe. And you'll receive first word of exciting upcoming Bible resources, updates on upcoming events, things to celebrate, and exclusive five and five audio conversations between myself and a monthly guest offering inside looks at the ministry and plans moving forward. 
To sign up to receive the monthly ministry update email, visit us at backtothebible.ca or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.